in honor of reading of God's Word. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12 and stand with us as we read God's Word this morning. 1 Corinthians 12, Nathan's going to be reading verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now therefore, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. And to another by faith the same spirit. And to another the gifts of healing by the same spirit. To another works of miracles. To another prophecy. To another, uh, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit. Who portions to each one individually as he wills. Alright, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for um, giving us... Uh, these gifts. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Father, this morning we need um, our eyes opened. We need our minds and hearts open to receive what you have for us. I pray that um, in this subject of spiritual gifts that we'll be in for the next month, Lord, that you would give us uh, great wisdom and guidance as we navigate um, these uh, sometimes choppy waters. Lord, I pray that you would um, give us clarity Lord, we thank you for the songs that we sang this morning that have prepared us to hear from you. Uh, we are uh, thankful that, that though we were once enemies, um, you've uh, seated us at your table, and at that table you continually lavish upon us gift after gift after gift. And as we sang, we, we look forward to the day um, when we are able to uh, sing to you on your throne, uh, unhindered by sin, um, unhindered by uh, broken relationships. Lord, in that day, we, we, uh, we wait with eager expectation. And Lord, until that day, pray that you would give us diligence and perseverance to do what you've called us to do, that we might make disciples of all nations. Lord, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, we have the uh, privilege of starting a new um, section of the book of 1 Corinthians. So we've been in this letter to the Corinthians for quite a while. So I actually want you to just turn back in your Bible or your app to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's going to go back here for a second because I want to, um, I want us to see what Paul is doing and what he's already done to prepare us for talking about gifts, which is a fun subject. We like gifts, right? You, you like receiving gifts. You like opening gifts. Um, some of you especially are Gifted at giving gifts. I'm going to make sure I said that right. Um, we, li- we like gifts. These are, these are good things for us. And that's really key to remember when we talk about what can be a pretty touchy subject. Um, where in, just in this church, we have people from various backgrounds, saved at different churches, different understandings of some of the scriptures that we'll be talking about over the next few weeks. Uh, but at the outset, let's remember these are gifts. These are gifts given um, by a good giver to his children. That's really key. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verses 4 through 7 to see um, how Paul even thanked God at the beginning of the letter for this Corinthian, this church. 
He said, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This church... um, was not struggling with whether or not there were any gifts or they had any gifts. This church was gifted. Which is interesting because over the last few months, we've gone through some pretty um, crazy controversy going on in this church. Some of which was from um, lack of maturity. Some of which was from um, just pride and boasting in things they had no right to boast about. We even um, have talked about the divisions in the church, about who follows whom. I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas. Uh, we have all kinds of horrible things going on in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, a, a church that comes together and meets to celebrate the Lord's Supper and some are left hungry and some are drunk. What a, what a, what a crazy situation to be in. And yet, this church um, was very gifted. And so, Paul returns to the issue of gifts in chapter 12. And we're going to be in um, chapters 12, 13, and 14 talking about gifts for the next month. So it's good for us this morning to be reminded of the context of the letter. Uh, This is a a church that Paul started. Paul dearly loves these people, and yet he has uh, rebuked them uh, again and again, using some fairly harsh language in some cases, in some cases being a bit sarcastic in response um, to them. And so this is actually a good good way for us to see what a a mature uh, relationship is looks like amongst believers. Paul can approach these people and talk to them like this. He can rebuke them because they're brothers and sisters. And so as we see in chapters 12, 13, and 14, he's going to give them, he's going to rebuke them. He's going to educate them. He's going to encourage them. um, He's going to caution them. And we have a lot of good things to see and a lot of good things to take out of this passage. Another thing before we get started, how many of you have done some kind of spiritual gifts inventory spiritual gifts test to find out what your spiritual gifts are. Can you raise your hand? Okay, a good, a good chunk of you. Um, I just want to say at the outset, this is not the only place in God's Word where the spiritual gifts are enumerated. We'll look at it a little bit later briefly, but in Romans chapter 12, um, Paul's letter to the Romans, he mentions several gifts that God has given. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 4, the Apostle Peter uh, enumerates some gifts. And then later on in chapter 12, Pastor Ron will cover next week, there's even more uh, spiritual gifts listed. So this is something that is, is covered in multiple parts of Scripture from multiple authors. Um, God, through His Spirit, gave different authors different things in different contexts to say about gifts. So we don't get a full-orbed theology of gifts just here. Although this is the most extensive discussion of gifts in God's Word. So, uh, having said that, um, let's dive into the text. Point number one, authentic Christian spirituality centers on Jesus as Lord. Authentic Christian spirituality centers on Jesus as Lord. I I use that word spirituality on purpose because that's a, a pretty common, popular word in our culture. Um, it's good to be spiritual or to believe in some kind of spirituality that's generally looked on favorably because of how vague it is. Um, and I, I wanted to use spirituality in that sense to appeal to that, but I also wanted to put Christian in front of it to help us understand what's, um, what's happening in this text and relate that to our 
world. Um, sociologists in the last 30 or 40 years predicted that as America and Europe and other places became more and more secular, um, that religion and spirituality would rapidly decline. And you can read doomsday um, polls and news articles about uh, how many people don't go to church and how many people have turned away from the Christian faith and the Muslim faith and other faiths. Um, but the weird thing is, um, you can go around the world and see that overall, religion and spirituality is on, is on a, it's in a boom. It's a bear market, <laughs> okay? For, it's a bull market, sorry, <laughs> for, um, for spirituality and religion uh, in the world today. There is a vast interest um, in spiritual and religious things. Some places in the world it seems to be on a decline. Some it's on a rapid ascent. Um, but this is an important thing for us to understand because it is very important to billions and billions of people on this planet. And what is actually very interesting is our cultural context is now, I think, getting closer to the Corinthian cultural context. Um, it is a, a melting pot of various uh, ideas and religions in the Greco-Roman world where Corinth was situated, um, they were polytheists. And they were accommodating polytheists. Uh, the Romans loved to conquer lands, but then take those gods and bring them home and add them to their pantheon. And so um, the, the Greeks and the Romans worshipped all kinds of gods. They also um, had in various locations, especially in Greece, in Corinth and places like that, were very interested in spirits and in magic and in curses and blessings and amulets and all kinds of spiritual things like that. And I think that we, what we see in our culture is actually kind of a return to some of these pagan roots. So having said that, this is the background of the people that Paul is talking to. So you remember on Paul's second missionary journey, he planted the church in Corinth. And so he is who the Lord used to begin the work in Corinth, to begin to tell these pagans about a man named Jesus and to begin a church in Corinth. And so he, he helped these people out of their pagan background. And Acts tells us he was there for 18 months teaching and preaching and raising this church up. So he knows their background, which is a problem for us sometimes because like I've said before, this is like hearing one side of a telephone conversation. We're not exactly sure what he's responding to. We can just hear Paul's voice. We don't necessarily hear the Corinthians' voice. And that takes us to verse 1 of chapter 12, because Paul starts with the words, Now concerning. And we've seen this already three times in the letter. And it seems in those places that Paul is most likely responding to a letter or a report or both that he's received from the Corinthian church. So he says, now concerning to transition to a different topic. So chapter 12, 13, and 14 are governed by this now concerning. And one author said actually that uh, verse 1 in total reads like a slap in the face. And that's good for us to hear because on, on the reading of it, it doesn't seem that way to us. So let's read all of verse 1. It's a short one. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And on a surface reading, that seems like a very nice thing to say. What a caring thing for their church planter, their father in the faith to say. He doesn't want them to be uninformed. But another way to translate that word would be ignorant. And what we read and studied in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians was how much the Corinthian church valued knowledge 
and wisdom. And so Paul had to contrast the wisdom of Christ to the wisdom of the world. And so this reads... Um, on a deeper level, like a slap in the face, because he's talking to a gifted church. He's talking to a powerful church. He's talking to a church that has some very rich, wealthy people in it. And what he says is, I don't want you to be uninformed about these things. This thing that you wrote to me about, that you have a question about, that you probably feel fairly confident about, I don't want you to be uninformed. Having been with them for 18 months and seeing the maturity in the church... This shouldn't be an issue, and Paul has to bring it up again. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, um, and that word, spiritual gifts, is actually a different Greek word than most of the rest of the time we talk about gifts. So look at your Bible, look at verse 1, spiritual gifts. If you have an ESV, um, there's a little number next to that that takes you to the bottom or to the uh, inside to look at another possible translation. But look at verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts. Those are two different words for gifts. It's just hard to come, come across that way in English. Um, what's probably happening uh, here in verse 1 is Paul is using the word that the Corinthians wanted to use for gifts. But in verse 4, and we'll get there in a little bit, he's going to say, I'd rather use this word to talk about gifts. And we're going to see exactly why um, he does that. But this is most likely just referring to spiritual things. It could be referring to spiritual persons. Uh, But it seems that the context that they're talking about spiritual manifestations, spiritual things. And this comes from their background. The Corinthians would have come out of a pagan background where most likely they would have been involved in what's called the mystery religions. And the mystery religions were all about experiences. um, All about oracles, all about going to the temple and hoping to receive communication from a god or goddess or spirit. And oftentimes that looked like a religious, maybe even ecstatic experience um, where an oracle or a spirit or a god or a goddess seem to come over a person and control them, maybe give them something like a prophecy, um, maybe give them dreams or visions. And this is the background that they came out of. And so Paul wants to distinguish what it means to have spiritual gifts as a Christian from what it meant to be gifted or to receive something in their pagan background. So all the things that were going on around them, Paul wants to draw a line and say, this is what gifts from our God look like. And this is what the gifting, the reception of whatever happened in, the, in your pagan background looked like. And they are different. And in verses 2 and 3, he helps us delineate the difference. So he, he reminds them, you know, in verse 2, that when you were pagans... You were led astray to mute idols, however you were led, pointing back to their background. When you were pagans, that word can also be translated Gentiles, um, but it seems to be talking about their religious past, not just the fact that they're non-Jews. Some of them. There were Jews in the Corinthian church. But he's mainly talking about their pagan past because the Jews in the congregation would not have had um, as much experience with idols as the pagans would have. And we talked about this in Meat Sacrifice to Idols in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Um, We went through that extensively, talking about what worship looked like in sacrifices. But notice that Paul calls the idols mute. Uh, I think the King James says dumb. That they are speechless idols. And they were led astray to them. And this is the stupidity of sin. 
this, this shows us the, um, the stupidity of sin. Because Paul points out, you worshipped gods and goddesses that couldn't speak. Now think about what that means. Think about the way you pray, for example. Lord, speak to me. Lord, show me. We call this book God's word. Words come from a speaker. So what Paul is, is implying is that, not, he's not even implying, he's saying explicitly, the gods you used to worship were speechless. They were mute. In fact, this is something that's um, borne out again and again and again in the Old Testament. I'd like to take us to two places to point this out in the Old Testament. Go to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, it's in the, the end of the Old Testament. Okay, Habakkuk. One of the minor prophets, they're kind of small, so I'll give you some time to rummage about there in the end of the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk is talking about the Babylonians and their, their future fall. And the present time that he's writing this, they look overwhelming and are going to destroy Judah. But he's speaking of their future. And in Habakkuk 2 verse 18... God's prophet has this to say about other gods. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord, Yahweh, our God, is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk does what Isaiah does in several places and other prophets. He says, look, if you have to make your God, and then you worship the thing that you made, isn't logically that a a foolish thing to do? Um, isn't it foolish to take a block of wood to decorate it however you want and then decide that, poof, it's become something that it wasn't before? If I said to the piano, <laughs> wake, rise, I would be, you know, loony. <laughs> I'd be crazy because I'm, I'm speaking to an inanimate object. So Habakkuk says, why would you take an inanimate object decorate it and pretend that now it's somehow animated and not only that but it's now something worthy of your worship you made it that's foolishness and why would you say to a stone arise there's rocks everywhere in fact these people live in israel that's all they have is rocks there's there's no end to rocks you could find rocks anywhere why would you worship something that can't even speak to you That is foolishness in itself. Go back to Psalm 115 now and see another example of this. And and I had to be real careful because I wanted to go to a bunch of other places and we're only going to go to two, but um, all over the Old Testament, God's prophets speak to his people and say, look at your foolishness. Look at the stupidity of turning to idols. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Actually, let's start in 2. Psalm 115.2 Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's a good, good verse. Our God's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols, a, however there, their idols are silver and gold, the work of 
human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The psalmist really takes down the view of gods and goddesses as um, put in idols. <laughs> why would you do this? Why would? Why, in fact, here, here's, here's how crazy this is. They had to carve a mouth onto the idol to make it have a mouth, and yet the mouth doesn't speak. Um, this is this is childish at best. Okay, this so this is like the little girl or little boy that is speaking to something that can't really speak. Except these are adults, and they're not pretending they have another friend. They're pretending that there's someone worthy of their worship. This is utter foolishness, and it, again, just the stupidity of sin. This is what sin does to us. Sin makes us stupid. Isn't that what you say when you, when you sin sometimes? You go, ah, that was so stupid. So dumb. Why did I do that? That's what sin is. It's illogical. It makes no sense to rebel on the God of the universe. The God, the one God who can speak, who can hear, who can act. To ignore that God is foolishness. So back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is what Paul is drawing from. Using the traditional Jewish understanding that the other gods were mute in fact, back in chapter 8, they're not really gods at all. They're not really gods at all. He says, remember that. When you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. That's how you used to be. That's what you used to do when you were pagans before Christ. Verse 3. Paul wants to bring Christian clarity to the Corinthians because they're mixing up their pagan pasts with their Christian present. So he's trying to bring clarity here. Verse 3. Therefore... I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. That's the word anathema. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. One scholar said that the heart of what is being said here is that the Lordship of Christ is not a human discovery. This is not just a, a human decision to go, I don't like the idol worship anymore. This Jesus fellow is kind of cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to this, this God. What, he, what he's saying is true Christian worship is understanding the lordship of Jesus. So th- there is some debate about um, why does he say the thing about Jesus being a curse because what kind of, what person in a church would actually think to say that? Um, but the point here is probably pointing to their pagan past where they were mixed up with curses and, and um, rituals and blessings and all of these things and using higher beings um, as they're in their curses. Uh, so we actually have some record of some pseudo-Jewish curses that would harken back to Solomon because he was a great and wise man, so they would use Solomon in their curse. Um, so perhaps what's happening is just a mix-up um, a, a syncretism of the former pagan beliefs with these new Christian beliefs, and there's a confusion of how to fuse them together. The phrase here that's very important, of course, is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. To the Jewish background believers in Corinth, this would equate Jesus with Yahweh 
Israel's covenant God. So the Jewish background believers would primarily hear Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. The Gentile background, the pagan background believers would hear Jesus is Lord and they would equate that specifically with kingship because um, Caesar was Lord. In fact, we have lots of evidence that a lot of what um, the authorities tried to do to Christians was to say, recant Jesus, say Caesar is Lord. That's all you got to do to get out of this. We won't throw you to the lions. Say Caesar is Lord. Well, the, the exact opposite of that for the Christians was to say, no, Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar. And so this became, this even had political overtones. Um, and we even see that in the crucifixion of Jesus. Right? Pilate's trying to figure out, are you a king? What, what, what kind of king are you? And so um, this understanding of Jesus as Lord transcended their culture and was very specific to this new religion of Christianity. Jesus is Lord. And no one can say that except in the Holy Spirit. And he's not saying that someone, you can't go to someone on the street and say, hey, say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Okay, the Holy Spirit led you to to say that. That's not what he's saying. He's speaking of, of true belief. He's speaking of, this is talking on the context of worship. For someone to truly, really mean that they accept Jesus as Lord, that they worship Jesus as Lord, that they submit to Jesus as Lord, means that Caesar is not. It means that Jesus is the king. And this even reminds us of Jesus' saying at Caesarea Philippi in the Gospels when he says to his followers, who do you say that I am? This is an identity issue. Who is Jesus? That's the most important question that we can ask. If you watch the Learning Channel or the History Channel or some other things a little too often, you will see all kinds of speculations about who this Jesus was or even who he said he was. So this morning, perhaps it's good for us to be reminded and to ask ourselves, who do I say that Jesus is? And it's really easy in this room with the worship team leading us, with the words on the screen, with our Bibles open in our seats, to say, yeah, Jesus is Lord. It's a lot harder to say Jesus is Lord at work on Monday, isn't it? There are situations that will happen this week that will be difficult for you to say and mean and live out that Jesus is Lord. Who is this Jesus? Well, the Corinthians were told here by Paul that he is Lord, and this is the center of, of the Christian message. It's the center of Christian understanding. So authentic Christian spirituality centers on Jesus as Lord. With that foundation laid, Paul now helps us understand spiritual gifts. Now that Jesus is firmly entrenched as Lord of the universe, as Lord of the church, we can now talk about the gifts of the Spirit in the church. And I just want to, to say at the outset that there are so many differing views on what we're about to talk about that there's no way that I can enter into um, all of what there is to, to do. That's what Pastor Ron's going to do next week. And as we continue to go further, you know, one of the things I had trouble with this week studying is how much of, how much of this sermon can I preach without stepping on Ron's sermon next week? Because I've got 11 verses and he's got all the way to the end of the chapter and this is the intro. So I'm going to try to step around some landmines here and leave those for Ron and also introduce this topic um, for the next several 
weeks. So let's dive into verses four through seven. Point number two, diversity is God's plan for the good of the church. Diversity is God's plan for the good of the church. Using some cultural key words today, spirituality, diversity. (laughs) It's going to be good. Diversity is God's plan for the good of the church. Now we know that the Corinthians were having trouble with factions, trouble with leaders, trouble with the wealthy elevating themselves above the poor, trouble with the many boasting about what they knew and what they were able to do. And so with that background, we can see that what was going on in the church was more division, more factionalism over the spiritual gifts. And what Paul is going to do here is broaden that and flatten it out. He's going he's gonna to say, there's more, here than, there's more here than what you see, and he's going to say, everybody is gifted. See, what seemed to be going on is that, uh, and we see this in 2 Corinthians as well, that there seemed to be some um, super elite in the church, some who were better, some who had more knowledge, some who were accepted at a higher level, and Paul is going to level the playing field. And the first way he does that, look at verse 4, is by using a different word for gifts. Now there are varieties of gifts. That word is charisma. Okay, where we get the term charismatic. All right? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But that comes from the root word charis, which is the word for grace. So at the very outset, Paul's word for for gift is more like grace gift. Um. This word wasn't used all that often in the Greek world around, and so Paul, he didn't make up this word, but he tweaks the usage, and it's very clear that that the emphasis on gift, and we forget this sometimes, is that it was given. It is a gift given to you. You know, when, when we were little kids, we would boast about the things that were given to us, but as we look back, that doesn't make any sense. Um, to claim or to make boasts about something that was given to you in the end doesn't make much sense at all because you didn't do anything to get it. You didn't do anything to receive it. It was a gift. It's a free gift. Um, and so as, as we see when he's talking about this, he's going to use gifts um, in, in various ways here and he's going to tell us about how they're distributed. And then he also is going to, in the midst of that, work in um, basically a foundation laid on the Trinity, that God is one and God is three. So watch this. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. It's really important for us to see um, what is going on here. And I think this is where we see that Paul is, is kind of uh, leveling the playing field here. It seems that as we get into chapter 14 especially, that the church in Corinth had elevated the gift of tongues, probably to some extent the gift of prophecy, um, as kind of the super gifts. Um, if you had those gifts, you were extra special. You were elite. And so they had kind of cornered these gifts as the ones that you want. And Paul is going to try to bring everybody back down and level the playing field. So, the first phrase he uses is varieties of gifts. There are many gifts. There's different kinds of gifts. And again, they're gifts. So there's a God, there's a giver. God is giving these varieties, these many gifts, but it's the same Spirit who is giving them. 
I think gifts and spirit are probably related there, that, that Paul's doing that on purpose, okay, that, that one of the roles the spirit plays in the Godhead is to um, deliver and act in the gifts. Next, there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. This is the word diacon, the diaconia. It's the word where we get deacon. It just means service. And that lines up with Jesus' role. He was the suffering servant. So he relates Lord, which almost exclusively in Paul means Jesus. So if you see the word Lord, when we're in Paul's writings, and mainly in the New Testament, Lord refers to Jesus almost all the time. So we have varieties of gifts, the same spirit, varieties of service, but the same Lord. Which, by the way, service was not how these people in the church at Corinth equated gifts. Gifts were to elevate. Gifts were to bring somebody up front. Gifts were made to draw the spotlight. Now when Paul says there's varieties of service, ah, that's, not as, that's not as fun. That's not as prominent. But he equates them with the same Lord. And last, there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So in my Bible, I like to make little triangles everywhere I see something having to do with the Trinity. And I think if you're paying attention, you can see that every once in a while. That look, here's the Spirit, here's the Lord Jesus, and here's God the Father. All working in the realm of spiritual gifts. Warren Wearsby helped us understand what's going on here. He says this, The source of the gift is God. The sphere for administering the gift is from God. And the energy to use the gift is from God. So that every aspect of the gift comes from, is worked out in, and is given power from God. So if you were to boast in your gift, that's fundamentally flawed. That's missing the entire point of the gift. By boasting in this, and Paul has already talked about this in chapter 4, what do you have that you did not receive? You can't boast about it. You, you received it. You didn't do anything to earn it. In these gifts, in these services, in these activities, it is the same God who empowers them all and in everyone. And in verse 7, we're given the key. To each, everyone's got a gift, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For personal elevation, for headlines, for tr- trending on Twitter. No, for the common good. And that word for common good, we've already seen this before, was used back in chapter 6 and back, back in chapter 10. Remember Paul's quoting the Corinthians and they say, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. That word helpful is the same word here as common good. Okay, this is what's helpful for everyone, the common good. Each manifestation is for the common good. All Christians have spiritual gifts. There's no elite I want to make that very clear. Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been given a gift or gifts from the God of the universe. Everyone has a gift. If you feel useless this morning, you're missing the point. Because God has gifted you. God has gifted you. He has not just saved you from sin and death and hell, but He saved you to good works that He prepared beforehand for you to walk in. You are gifted in various ways, most likely. And so, we, ha- we all have gifts. Um, and, and I think it's important to, to note here that each is given 
the manifestation of the Spirit. So this manifestation means the Holy Spirit's revealing, disclosing, announcing Himself and His work in and through the church. So that each and every believer who uses their gift manifests God in how they exercise those gifts. So I I heard this this past week that... um, a certain church, their, their men's Bible study, one of the things they practice is encouraging one another, but in order to stay away from flattery, um, they, they use um, Colossians 1.27, says Christ in you, the hope of glory, and they say to each other to encourage one another, recently, I've seen Christ in you when you, and they use that to acknowledge the gift, to acknowledge that it is God who enables them to do those things, without flattering the person, without feeling the need to say something that, that isn't true. What they're saying is, when you did this, when you used your gift, I saw God. And that's why in chapter 14, Paul's going to say, if someone walks into the service of the church, are they going to fall on their face and say, God is working here? Are they going to sense God's presence? Are they going to see gifts being used that manifest God's presence in the church? That is incredibly important. So here in verses 4 through 7, we see that the tri-unity, the trinity, okay, that God is one, God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit, that this tri-unity also models the unity that we ought to have in the church. Um, Ron has talked about the, the patron and the client system um, in Corinth. There were these patrons, um, and then there was this reciprocity that went back and forth. And one of the commentators said, there's no reason to boast because all the, they're all clients of the same patron. Um, we're, not, we're not working for Paul or Cephas or Apollos. We're, we're working for God because he's given us the gifts to do the work. So one patron has distributed gifts, which means if we're to work for that patron, we're all working for the same guy. We're all working for the same patron. We're all working for the same God. And this plays into the unity that we'll see stressed next week in the rest of chapter 12. Also here, if there are varieties of gifts, if everyone has been given a gift, then that means every Christian is charismatic. <laughs> Little c. Okay, so the, some of you just got real nervous. <laughs> and a few of you woke up. It was great. Uh, <laughs> um, if, if we use the word in the way that it's meant as a grace gift and every Christian has a gift, then every Christian has received a charism, a charisma. Every Christian is charismatic. Now, of course, the word has um, been used to talk about a, a particular movement in the church. Um, but in the real sense here, okay, we, we all are gifted. We all have gifts given to us by a loving Father. As we move into the last section, um, verses 8 through 11, uh, we're going to see the list of gifts given and just a few comments on them. So point number three, the source of the many gifts is one sovereign spirit. The source of the many gifts is one sovereign spirit. So coming out of the manifestation of the Spirit is for the common good. Now Paul begins to enumerate some of these gifts. What are these gifts? And I, I want to be very clear, I don't think this is an exhaustive list. 
Um, and, and I'll tell you uh, the reason why is because you just go to the end of chapter 12 and Paul in verse 28 adds two more gifts that he didn't mention in the beginning of the chapter. And you go to Romans 12 and he talks about a few gifts that aren't mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. And you go to 1 Peter 4 and Peter has a different way of classifying the spiritual gifts. And already in 1 Corinthians we talked about marriage as a gift and singleness as a gift. So we want to be careful that we're not locked into the, depending on how you count, 18, 19, 20, or 21. I saw that in all the, all the uh, commentaries this week. Some had 18 gifts, some had 19, some had 20, some had 21. That we're not um, merely locked into these. That these are examples of the way that God gifts people in the church. Now, I want to be cautious on the other side and not just to say, well, then I can just make up my own spiritual gift. <laughs> um, we, we do want to be led by the text. And so I think that the examples... Um, and the, the categories given will help lead us to understanding the gifts. One, one commentator said on this section, it is futile to speculate at length about the precise meaning of each gift because Paul does not give us enough information to construct a clear picture. So I, I kind of would want to just caution you if you're reading something about spiritual gifts or listening to someone about, talking about spiritual gifts, if they have, if they have a, an inflexible definition of all of these gifts, I'd be careful. Because as you read this, there's a lot we don't know. Now there's, there's enough that we do know to help us move on and to understand how to use our gifts. But to lock in um, a, a definition given to a gift that was given and talked about 2,000 years ago is, is a little bit tough. So we want to be careful um, how we get to this. Um, however, when we're talking about gifts... There's something that, that, that comes to the fore real quickly, and, and Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 4, but if you have a gift, the implication is you ought to use it. <laughs> so, so it's not just good enough to go, I've got this gift. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> what are you doing with it? What's it for? Um, what, what are you going to use it for? Now, I also want to be careful because sometimes we get into this mystical stuff with spiritual gifts. Um, and it, it becomes so subjective that I just make up whatever I want. Um, saying use your spiritual gift is not like the saying that more than 100,000 people at the Anaheim Convention Center have been hearing nonstop this week. Use the force. That's not the same thing. We're, we're not talking um, about manipulating some energy field that's created by all living things. And I had to geek out on Star Wars in the sermon because the trailer came out this week. But... <laughs> As much as I love Star Wars, the whole, I've tried to, I've tried to hear people take the force from Star Wars and equate it to the Holy Spirit, and that's just, that's just awful. That's, that's wrong. That's nowhere near what we're talking about here. We're not talking, okay, about, um, trying to levitate rocks, alright? We're not talking about an elite Jedi. We're talking about the Church of God. Everyone's given gifts from God to use for the common good. So as we dive into these, some of them are, I mean, most of these are just listed. So the only thing we have going for us is there's a phrase or a word, and we have to figure out what that means. So the first two gifts listed in, in verse 8, I don't really know what they are. <laughs> um, we have to be pretty cautious when we talk about these things. So look at the first two. The ESV uses the word utterance. I don't, I don't like that. I think NIV and some other translations use either word um, or message, the, the word of knowledge according to the same spirit, the, the, the utterance of wisdom through the spirit, the word, the message. Um, what is this? Well, 
wisdom and knowledge have been discussed in this book, have they not? The wisdom of the world, the wisdom of God, it's foolishness. Um, we talk about knowledge throughout chapters 1 through 4. It's not easy to see what these are, um, but we can eliminate them being the same thing as prophecy, because prophecy is later on in the list. So some people want to make the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, the same thing as prophecy. But that doesn't make any sense, because they're in the same list. So probably what's going on here, wisdom tended to be more of a practical outworking, and knowledge tended to be more of a theoretical or an understanding of a subject or a topic. Um, and so y- you want to be, you want to see this as maybe someone has been gifted by the Spirit with a word or a message or an utterance for a specific time to give wisdom in a situation or to give knowledge to someone who's lacking it. Beyond that, I don't want to go too far in speculating about what these mean, but remember, God's given these gifts for the common good. So whatever, they, whatever they're for, they're to help the body of Christ function properly. The next, uh, the next uh, gift that we want to look at is uh, faith, verse 9. To another, faith by the same Spirit. And he's going to continue to go, same Spirit, same Spirit. All gifts are coming from the same Spirit. This can't be saving faith. This is something different than the faith that saves us. Um, it's probably a special or maybe an especially strong faith. Uh, two of the commentaries actually mentioned uh, George Mueller um, as an example of someone with maybe perhaps the gift of faith, just um, an extra oomph in belief of what God can accomplish, probably related to leadership, um, possibly related to uh, the next two gifts. The next gift is the gifts of healing. Notice that that is, um, that's uh, more than one, okay? That is plural, not the gift of healing, but gifts of healing, which indicates that perhaps someone does not possess the gift of healing at all times, but is given gifts of healing for certain times. Um, I think you can see this as you look at the book of Acts and you watch Paul work, and then you read his letters. Paul heals people on some of his trips. He, he heals those. In fact, he walks um, down streets and people try to get close so they can be healed, similar to what happened with, uh, with Jesus. But then in some of his letters, Paul also talks about Timothy being sick, Trophimus almost dying and being ill, and several others of his helpers, I think Epaphroditus and some others, being sick. Paul himself talks about physical ailments. So it's not as if Paul possessed the gift of healing and was just, again, like some Jedi using the force to manipulate things. Um, oh, I got a sniffle. Boom. You know, like, that, that's not what's being, being talked about here. And I think that because it's given a plural, that means that there is, there's a, a different way that God's working with different people at different times. Maybe, maybe someone could have a gift of healing for just a limited time or just a specific situation. And healing, of course, is talking about um, physical ailments, bodily um, things being healed. The next word is related, the working of miracles. Working of miracles, this is a word often used of Jesus' miracles. And so it has to be somewhat different than healing, right? Or else he wouldn't use those two different words. So this may be more like exorcisms, um, maybe more like nature miracles, um, with, you know, this may be 
something more like parting of waters. Uh, this may be like multiplying food. Um, things like those. Calvin suggests that perhaps like the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira um, are, are a, a deadly miracle. Or the blinding of Elimus um, on Paul's first missionary journey um, in, in Cyprus. He, he calls down and blinds this false prophet who is um, keeping those from hearing about Jesus. Perhaps those are, are what is more at stake here with miracles. Next, he says, to another, the work, uh, to another working miracles, to another, prophecy. And we're actually a lot more familiar with prophecy because we have a book before the New Testament <laughs> called the Old Testament, which is full of prophets and prophesying. I'm not going to step too much on Ron's toes here because prophecy comes up a lot more in chapter 14. Um, but essentially, a prophecy in whatever form it comes in in the Old or New Testament is a message from God. Most basic level, a prophecy is a message from God. It seems, as we talk about chapter 14, that the, uh, that the gift of prophecy is more likely spontaneous. More of a spontaneous empowerment um, to give God's message. It's all, we're, we're um, usually, what we like to talk about prophecies, we like to talk about foretelling. Right? Fort, I'm sorry, foretelling. The, the future, Revelation, Daniel, things to come, the end times. Well, most of the time, God's prophets actually were foretelling. They were telling God's message to the people. Repent. Turn from your ways. Um, there were prophecies of, of um, hope in the present and in the future. The, the next uh, gift is something that we have very little understanding of. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. And the way that this is made more difficult is because Paul and the Greeks use spirits in a different way that we understand spirits. So he may be talking about demonic spirits, angelic spirits. He may be talking about people that are supposedly um, using some kind of spiritual gimmick or an oracle to give prophecies from another god or goddess. And so that this gift would be to distinguish between what is of God and what is not of God. Um, they, they have a heightened ability from God to distinguish, to discern. And the last two gifts that are mentioned here in verse 10, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. And there's much more of this in chapter 14, also mentioned in chapter 13. Um, the, the main question is, are these intelligible human languages or are they unintelligible angelic languages. Um, chapter 13, um, the way of love. Uh, Paul says, um, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and so that is a cue to some that this is what's being talked about. Again, um, you can go back to Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost and um, the disciples are speaking in other human languages. The question becomes in, in these chapters, uh, is, that, is this the same thing? Is it a variation? Because it's also interesting that he says various kinds of tongues. And again, that word for tongues in, in Greek is, is just a word for language. Um, and then the interpretation of that would either be a straight translation, this is what was said, or a further interpretation t- telling what this means. So the, what we see in chapter 14 is that the gift, is, the gift of tongues is given and someone speaks 
in a way that is not understandable to everyone else in the congregation. And what is necessary for that gift to be helpful for the common good is for that person or someone else to also be given the gift of interpretation so that the message might be helpful. Okay, so so these are the gifts, and it's stressed throughout that there's one and the same Spirit giving these gifts, and that they are being given. They're gifts. They're grace gifts. The selection of gifts is out of hands of the Corinthians. If someone tells you, come and learn how to have this gift, that doesn't make any sense. Because if you don't have the gift, you can't learn how to use it. So um, the, the Spirit of God is personally giving gifts to believers. And this is emphasized in verse 11, and we'll close here. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the sovereign Spirit. He decides what gifts we receive. Now that doesn't invalidate what Paul says in 12.31, earnestly desire the higher gifts, or 14.1, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. But D.A. Carson helps us to see what he means by this. Christians may pursue what is best of the charismatic gifts, the gifts, but they have no right to any particular one and must ultimately trust the wisdom of their Heavenly Father's gracious distribution through the mediation of His Holy Spirit. So God gives the gifts, and when God gives us a gift, we ought not whine or complain or be envious of someone else's because we all are giving gifts for the common good. So the takeaway for us is the same as the takeaway for the Corinthians. Let's not be uninformed about these things. Sometimes we flee controversy because we don't like getting mixed up in, in those things. But, but we need to be informed. We need to know what we're talking about when we're talking about the spiritual gifts. So don't enter serious discussion or debate on the spiritual gifts uninformed. You, you, none of us like talking with someone else who is uninformed about the topic we are talking about. Right? That, that's not helpful. That's not fun. Be informed about what you're talking about. After all, Paul spends a significant chunk of this letter talking about spiritual gifts. So it must be important. So we need to try to understand this as best as possible. So read good books, talk with knowledgeable people, and pray. Um, similar to that, approach any and all discussions of spiritual gifts with grace. If the gifts are grace gifts, then the way we talk about them ought to be gracious. To talk about grace gifts in an ungracious manner makes no sense. Last, the sermon title that I gave today can help us here too. I I titled the sermon, Gifts from God for all for good. So if maybe if you don't go away with anything else today, just remember that the gifts are from God. They're not self-developed. They're from God. Who are they for? They're for all Christians. Every single Christian has a spiritual gift. And they are for good. Gifts are not given to make us look awesome. The gifts are given to make God look awesome. That is what they are for. So, as we dive into this topic, please remember some of these things at the outset so that we might approach this topic with grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace that we sang about this morning that is amazing undeserved, initiated by you. 
And Lord, you, you don't stop there because you lavish upon us grace upon grace. So help us to be thankful for the way that you've equipped us personally. Thank you for the way that you've equipped this church. God, you've given this church so many gifts, so many blessings. And Lord, I can't help but think that there are probably more that we're not exercising. So, so help us to, to understand our gifts, to work on figuring out what our gifts are in community, to ask others what they see in us. And Lord, that we might exercise those gifts not to make ourselves look great, but that we might exercise them for the common good so that our brothers and sisters are resourced by God's Holy Spirit through us. Lord, help us to go even from this place right now to our next time of education, of learning, of sharing. And Lord, help us to use our spiritual gifts um, in that. Lord, I pray that you would reveal uh, to us in this series how we can better serve you by using our spiritual gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.